the separate life in Christ. Last week, we heard about Father Abraham. Father Abraham, who is the symbol of all true believers, according to Scripture. If you read Romans 4, for example, he was called by God to forsake everything to follow Christ to a land, to the land that was called the land of promise, and ultimately to heaven. And I'm going to go ahead and read some scriptures to you without turning to it. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place that he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. In other words, he remained a stranger in this very land of promise that he was to inherit, or his children would, actually. He would live in tents. For he looked for a city that hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. But now they desire a better country, that is, unheavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city, i.e., the city of God. In other words, heaven is his home. Heaven is the home of all of God's people, not earth. Is God and being with God enough to live a life of a pilgrim? That is, a life separate in Christ. As you know, as is commonly known in the church, we are living in the world but not of it. These are words that come right out of the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus when he prayed in John 17. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, Father. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I perceive that there is in you, as are in, and I say all of God's people, a hesitancy, perhaps a reluctance, to follow after Jesus in this all-out manner, pulling all the stops. And if that is true, what could the reasons possibly be, according to our passage? There are three. And I pose them in the form of questions. Is the cross too heavy to bear? As our Lord notes in verse 27 of Luke 14, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and cometh after me, he cannot be my disciple. What is the cross? It's obviously not the cross that our Lord bore and was helped in caring that ultimately he was executed upon. Is it a silver or gold metallic cross of ornamental beauty to adorn church buildings or perhaps the neck as a necklace? It's a symbol 
of your willingness and mine to die to the things of this world in order to live to the things of God, to live for Christ. As the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that entail? Meaning bearing one's cross. He goes on to say in verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, Yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What does that entail? My summary is that you love Jesus so much that your love for your earthly family is like hatred in comparison. That means that you make choices for Christ that may not favor or please your family, and especially and particularly should they not be Christians themselves and who don't love the Lord? How does one do that? Who's up to that? Let me just say that you can't and I. Cross-bearing, which again is what we're talking about, what our Lord is talking about, is utterly impossible without the grace of God. Because we love ourselves too much because we love our families and our relatives, and particularly this life, too much. But not all things are possible. As he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, the Apostle Paul, it is, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So, is the cross too heavy to bear? But did you count the cost? That's the next question. Did you count the cost? Do you have what it takes to finish God's building project in your life? In verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether we have sufficient to build it? When you first came to Christ, did you count the cost of what it truly means to be a follower of Christ? No? Or maybe in all of what was happening in your life, like in the case of myself, there was so much happening at the time that what I thought I heard, I didn't really hear, and what I didn't hear is what I needed to hear, as it were. I remember that all too well, and how, for example, my spiritual dad in the faith once asked me, do you know why God saved you? I never had that question posed to me, but my answer was glibly, because he needed me to serve him in his kingdom. Buh, wrong. <laughs> and from that point on, I stood corrected on that point. That was one of many points that the Lord would be correcting me about. Well, did you count the cost of what it means to follow Christ 
when you first came to know him? Well, that's water under the bridge, as they say. But how about now? How about now? Are you really willing to be a disciple of Christ? In other words, are you really willing to follow Jesus all the way? Look at with me Nehemiah 4, 1 through 6. Comes after the name of my firstborn, Ezra. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Nehemiah. 4, 1 through 6. Another building project. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, this was after the restoration of the Jews back to the promised land. Cyrus, who was the emperor, the king, uh, had compassion on them, allowed them to go back after seven years. And it says that Sanballat, who was one of the roadblocks to their, to their uh, finishing the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem that were torn down, by the Assyrians, heard that we builded the wall, he was angry and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. Talk about mocking the building project that's not done. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice again? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah, the Ammonite, was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Now listen to this. So built we the wall. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. For the people had mind to work. You see what it is going to take to build the church build the kingdom of God is that we have a mind to work. If you don't have a mind to work or a heart for that matter, it ain't going to be built. It's like what I recall back in Paradise Hills when I was living there years ago. A track of unfinished homes that stood along the side of the road. Not only empty and vacated, but not completed. We were about a great work, the building of the kingdom of Christ. He has provided us with the means. If he did not task us to this end, he would not, because we don't have the wherewithal, then he would not have done so. But he has, and he has provided the talents and the building materials, as it were. In 1 Corinthians 
12, 7, 4, it reads, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Diversity of gifts. We don't all have the same gifts, but I assure you, we all have gifts. Now, they're not all the same. But put together, working as one, we can accomplish a task as God uses us. Just like the building of the tabernacle and all the artisans and the uh, uh, workers that were used, never mind the, the wealth of the congregation that poured into that work of building the tabernacle. So much so that Moses had to say, stop giving. We have plenty with which to build the tabernacle. God has given us the means. As it also says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. In other words, he has given each of us, bottom line, his word and his spirit, which is all we need. And he will equip us with whatever else materials we need along the way to serve him. But remember who you serve. Remember who it is that we are representing. Remember he is the commander-in-chief of all the armed forces of heaven. As it says in Daniel 4.35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? So, how do you serve this glorious King of kings and Lord of lords? Is it as Paul would bid us all to serve him in his church? For example, in Colossians chapter 3, 23 and 24. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord he shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For we serve the Lord Christ. Is that how we serve him? With our whole heart. For if you don't. For if I don't, we have to be ready to be the laughing stock of all those who know you and me and know or are familiar with our testimony. As our Lord put it, lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. You know, the one thing that we take with us out of this life, besides our souls, to God, is our testimony. What you do for Christ. And that is why the Lord says to those, to all of his people, what have you done with what I've given to you? Or to put it another way, what will we hear from his lips? when we stand before him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou to the joy of thy Lord. Depart from me, I never knew you. Did you know what you signed up for when you joined the Lord's army? You didn't know that you were, not, that you were signing up for that. Or maybe you, you did. Maybe you didn't like me initially, but, but hopefully since then you know. 
Our Lord says in our passage in Luke 14, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. That's a good idea to count the cost here, wouldn't you say? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage, that means ambassadors, peacemakers, and desireth conditions of peace. The Christian life is very clearly a warfare. We fight against sin and the flesh and the devil and the world. And one thing you never want to do, you who are in the military and the armed forces understand this, is you don't want to enter a war that you cannot win. The Vietnam War was one of them in our country's history. And I remember, because at the time, I was almost drafted at the age of 18 into the army. There are two things you must be ready to do if you are a soldier. You must be ready to take another man's life. And two, you must be ready to die at any time. And spiritual warfare is really no different. The first reason, or the first thing, that you have to be ready to do. You must be ready to take another person's life. Oh, wait a minute. Christians don't do that. They don't take anybody's life. Oh, yes, they do. Satan's. That's my contention, by the way. And I hopefully will prove it. If you turn to Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, I'd like to read that entire passage of the armor of God. Ephesians 6. Ten through seventeen. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We are in a wrestling match only to the death. We are in a warfare to the death. Why or what do you do with a sword? You kill someone. And that is Satan. You don't believe me? Well, first, let me have you turn to Genesis 
Genesis 3.15, where our Lord declared war on the devil. And who did he enlist to lead this battle? Genesis 3.15 reads, And I will put enmity, that means hostility, between thee, Satan, and the woman. There is a war going on between us and Satan, and between thy seed and her seed. And this, the, the, right down to the bottom line, her seed is Christ. Her seed is Christ. It, that is the seed of the woman, will bruise, and the word really in the original is destroy, crush thy head, meaning like a serpent that you take out by stepping on its head to kill it. And thou shall bruise his heel, which is symbolic of the crushing of the life of the Son of God, but only temporarily. For after three days, he would rise again. Turn now to Romans 16, 20. Romans 16, verse 20. Romans 16, 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Whose feet will Satan be crushed under? Is it only Christ's? No. It's the church's. Yours and mine who serve Christ. You, yours and mine whose feet have been shod to the preparation of the gospel of peace. I'm already leading you to the, to, to the task, to the uh, uh, weapon of choice, as it were. But let me read... Uh, one more uh, thing, and that is that Christ indeed maimed the devil at the cross and in his victorious resurrection. For in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, it reads, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. But somehow he will use the army of his church in the final destruction of the evil one. And what I contend and what I believe as is that the weapon of choice is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, that is Satan, by the way, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness in the creation, hath shined in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is where the victory lies. The victory lies in the gospel. The gospel which will unveil the evil one for who he is. The gospel which will unveil our hearts for what it is. The gospel which will reveal Christ as the only hope of this fallen world. And as the one who rides before us as our leader and as our commander, the captain of our salvation, upon that white stallion who will defeat the enemy along with his army that will be a part of the demise of Satan. That is where the victory is. But at the same time, let us not forget who gives us the victory in our doing his bidding, in our doing our part through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And don't forget also who will get the glory. It is not us. I will show you that. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor, our warfare, is not in vain in the Lord. But I said there are two things that you must be ready to do to be in the Lord's army. And the second one is you must be ready to die at any time. And that actually did happen for almost all of the 12 disciples except for the last, John. They all suffered a martyr's death. But let me say this. There is more to this than, than just being willing to die that way. There's the death of sin. There's the death of Satan's influence in your life. There's the death of a world that is a hater of God. Our Lord says in verse 33 of our passage, Luke 14, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And if you recall my reading in verse 26 about how you have to hate father and mother and wife and children and your own brothers and sisters, even your own life. That pretty much covers everything, I think, that's worth living for anyway. In other words, in the Lord's army, one must die to the love of self and live in order to live for the love of Christ. Paul put it this way. He says, you must endure hardness as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. No man that warth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. In the other passage that we also read at the end of our reading, in Luke 9, you might notice that of the three persons that approached Christ, the last two were examples of this very thing. One wanted to bury his father first, attend to something that is perfectly legitimate, in fact, expected, in fact, encouraged by the Bible. And by the way, burial, not predation, is what the R.C.S. 
has come to understand how we are to bury our loved ones. But that's another subject for another time. But let me say that if you had to choose between doing that and preaching in a situation where life and death, even the eternal destiny of souls, was precariously on the line. Let's say someone with a ravaging disease that we know is not going to make it and who still has the ability to hear and to understand the gospel. What would you choose? And the other situation was one in which the disciple, the recruit, the enlistee, wanted to say goodbye to his family. What's wrong with that? Like when you're about to head off to boot camp or maybe to a theater of war. He, he, he said, Lord, I will follow thee. I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And the Lord said to that, what? No man having put his hands to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Is the cross too heavy to bear? Did you count the cost? The third reason, are you presently following Jesus or not? This is a self-check. This is like a wake-up call, a smell the roses type of sermon. That closing statement on discipleship from Luke 9 by our Lord hits the nail on the head where he says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Spiritual fitness to be a follower of Jesus. Spiritual fitness. And in closing, let me have us turn to one last passage, Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, that should be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Are you looking unto Jesus? That's really what this comes down to, isn't it? Or are you still looking back? Like, as we know, Lot's wife. Christ says, remember Lot's wife. That's all he said in that statement, sermon, if you will, which is really a sermon packed into verse. Are you looking at the Jesus who was looking to the Father who didn't look back? Consider this. Had he looked back? Had he Changed his mind, and he had opportunity after opportunity to do so, did he not? Even right up to the 11th hour in the garden. 
when in his humanity he was sweating as it were great drops of blood and is praying to his father Lord take this cup from me but the grace of God prevailed in our Lord's life nevertheless not my will but thy will be done he our Lord endured the cross despising the shame at the same time he is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God we haven't even begun to know what it's like to resist unto blood striving against sin in closing where is your treasure that's what it comes down to our Lord says, answers that for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He says, continuing, the light of the body is the eye, meaning through our eyes, the light from within comes forth. If therefore thy eye be single, thy body is full of light. In other words, if our eyes are single in terms of the will of God, if our eyes are single in terms of looking unto Jesus, if our eyes are single in terms of wanting to build God's kingdom in our lives and in the lives of those around us who stand to benefit from that effort, then it shows that our eye is single and that what is coming forth is full of light. Unlike if your eye is evil and your whole body is full of darkness, how great is that darkness he declares and so are your eyes only for Jesus and we have heard this before because the theme was all through scripture faith in God through our Lord Jesus Christ are you truly looking to him or are you in some way still looking back even to look back for your adversaries no, you may look back, but, but get your eyes back on where it should be. Get back on track. Get back on track. As the Lord says, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, give us the strength and give us what ever we need, O oh Lord, your restraining grace, if that's what it calls for, your maintaining grace, if that's what we need. But whatever it is, Lord, you know what we need. But we yield ourselves to you. We ask that you would work in us. We yield to the Holy Spirit that we might not walk according to the flesh, but according to him who loved us and gave himself for us.